Uh, I am based in um, Los Angeles, but I live right outside in West Covina. Okay. All right. Well, welcome, Thomas. This is your first call. And yeah. that uh, um, I appreciate that, like most others, when they call, they've read a book or done a retreat or something like that. And so they come with the kind of the knowledge that you remember out of out of the book. <laughs> and that um, one of what happens with all of these authors is, is that they they see a phrase that is translated out of an old language, and then they like that phrase very much, and then they'll name the book that phrase without even understanding what it is. Um, that a whole point about illumination is not that the mind is going to be the illuminated thing, that the illumination is the knowledge or the being able to see that we're going to get into a situation to where we can see what's going on. And that's when those things become illuminated. An example of that would be now we're looking at the word enlightenment and almost always people get the idea that the word enlightenment is something special. Just like the mind illuminated, that sounds so special. And the whole point of um, the word enlightenment has crept into Buddhism, but we have to understand how to use the word because otherwise it's going to become magical. And there's a lot of magical thinking in Western Buddhism. I think that that comes out of the fact that the whole system of our society comes out of Christianity, which is based upon magical thinking. Everything about Christianity is based upon magical thinking. And surprisingly enough, everything that their, their main dude, Jesus, taught was real. He was teaching real things. And Christianity has become a magical layer on top of the reality. And that's basically what's happened with Buddhism also, that the Buddha was a real dude with some real good advice. And Western Buddhism is taking that advice and turning it magical. And so what we're really looking at is, can we look at it? Can we see it? If we can look at it and seeing it, then that's the first kind of enlightenment is to actually see what's going on. And what is it that we're going to see? Dukkha. That's what we're going to be looking for. What is the, uh, the dissatisfaction itself? And then the second point about the word enlightenment is, is that once we can see it correctly, we can do something about it. We can be delivered from it. We can set down that heavy burden of dukkha and to now we're light. So basically, um, take a look and lighten up. That's what enlightenment is. Take a look, see what it is, and then put it down, set it down, drop it. This is the entire teachings of the Buddha. There's nothing much to it other than that. But we can see that that applies in many, many different subtle areas. And so we need to develop the skills so that we can see dukkha. In fact, that's the whole process of uh, the skill development of one's right ability to look which is called right noble view, but it better would be translated as right noble viewing or right noble investigating. And once we investigate and investigate and investigate, we begin to see with discernment what's worth investigating and what's worth throwing out and not worth investigating. But Western Buddhism tends to think that whatever we can find is worth investigating. And then there's a whole lot of noise out there of a whole lot of things that need to be investigated. And we don't even have the skills of investigation because we're jumping all over the place. Yeah. I, I find. OK, talking about the Buddha. He had enormous courage. And I doubt that. You doubt that. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm courage is something that we do in the face of danger, in the face of um, fear, 
like the warrior who has courage, gets dressed up for battle and goes to war because he knows that something has to be done. The Buddha is not going to dress up in armor. He's just going to walk away. He's not going to. Why? Because he does not feel the danger. He recognizes that everything is safe, that in fact, if that warrior could see his enemy is safe, he would invite him to dinner rather than invite him to the battlefield. So the Buddha had no courage at all. Now, in the, the Pali, there's a Pali word called baya, and that the opposite of that is abaya, and abaya, like abaya Gary, the monastery that's in California, uh, in Mendocino County, okay. But it's translated wrong as fearless mountain or fearless hill. A better way of thinking about abaya means not fear, rather than courage in the face of fear, which is fearlessness, but rather feeling safe and secure. A better translation would be secure mountain or safe mountain or a keep, a safe place, a refuge. This is what we're talking about now is the problem with language. And you used it in the sense of courage. Buddha had no courage at all. Because there was no nothing to be afraid of. There was no danger. He was in a safe place. He had a strong resolve. Uh, let us say that he had confidence. Yes. That um, he can handle that the anything. Seems very necessary. Well, then that's a skill that's to be developed. What's your advice? Mm -hmm. That, in uh, fact, it's actually on the Eightfold Noble Path, yes. which is part of the Four Noble Truths. See, the whole point is, is that if we can start with the Four Noble Truths and really understand what's going on with the Noble Truths, then we can go to the next step and the next step. But Western Buddhism always wants to go right to the bottom line. It's almost like that you're in the first grade to learn the numbers. And once you've learned the 10 numbers, now let's do some calculus. All right, that's basically what the Western meditator wants to do is he's not ready to go through addition, multiplication, division, and then complicated addition, complicated multiplication, complicated division. And then when we get that, then we learn about equations and algebra one step at a time. So that's exactly how we should practice the teachings of the Buddha, one step at a time, rather than looking for results. So uh, would you recommend working on confidence as a building initial block? Well, the first thing to do is just to understand the Four Noble Truths, and then to come back to the Noble Truths and understand them a little deeper, and then come back to the Four Noble Truths and understand them a little bit deeper than that. Okay, and that that, in fact, is the skill that's going to grow is the skill of knowing that whatever this is, is dukkha, rather than something that we delighted in, because we delight in things, we, we get, gain gratification in things without seeing the danger. And if we can't see the danger, then we will not plot our escape. An example of that is anger. People feel powerful. They feel tough. They feel secure when they're angry because anger is merely doing nothing but covering up a sense of fear or a sense of loss. People don't get angry unless they feel like that they're either losing something or about to lose it. Like, my team is the best team. Don't tell me my team is not the best team. <laughs> because I don't want to lose my best team. Yes. Okay, and so this is why fights start, is because of the sense of the fear of loss. But once we feel the sense of the fear of loss, now we think the right and correct way to handle it is by getting angry. Once we understand that anger itself is inappropriate, and the longer we carry it, the more problematic it is. And that when we are angry, we're not only suffering, but we are causing another person to suffer. 
And so when we now begin to see that anger has some grand disadvantages, we'll find an escape from some, uh, from anger. And by finding the escape from anger, we look a little deeper and under there is when we find the fear that was there all along causing the anger. And so we used anger as a justification or we used anger to override or cover up the fear. That's why we like to get angry is because it makes us feel powerful in the face of our own fear. But when we have no fear in this moment, then we're not going to be getting angry. So this is back to the Four Noble Truths again and again and again as we have to see what's there. Is it actually uh, dukkha or is there to some advantage in it? And anger is one of them that needs to be investigated. Because if we can understand what dukkha is, then we can avoid it. And that's the whole teaching of the Buddha, dukkha naroda. Then to make sure, to, to make sure, I my knowledge of the four noble truths is accurate. What I know or what I have learned, better said, is impermanence, suffering. Uh, anatta or no self and finally the last one is what i'm a bit confused about because i feel like it's kind of just a summarization of the three other ones saying like this is the path out of suffering but i i guess i'm not understanding really well the last one well let's not go there let's go back to the four noble truths and understand that and then we can work with the trilokana and its friends or, uh, uh, which means that anicca dukkha, anatta tatata, sunyata, atamayata. So let's work with the Four Noble Truths first. And that is, is that there is suffering, there is dukkha, it does exist. And what we is best translated is dissatisfaction or unsatisfying. This is not good enough. And it's based upon judgment to where the word suffering is something else completely. It almost always has a physical component with strong pain and things like this. Okay. So because we see suffering as the translation for the word dukkha, we almost miss the point. Because the real definition of dukkha is just not liking something a tiny little bit as opposed to just being okay with it just a little bit. And so this is the place that we're working from. Now, a lot of people in the West misunderstand. They think that life itself is dukkha. You've heard things like life is shit and then you die or things like life sucks. Right? Guess what? Life only sucks when we're sucking. If we stop <laughs> sucking on something, then it doesn't suck anymore. Yeah. Okay, so that's the cause of suffering is not that uh, that life sucks. It's that we're sucking. And we need to, to see that sucking. That's the second noble truth is sucking. We want things that we don't have. Now, it's broken down as to, in fact, the Pali word is moba lohadosa. And that um, basically what we can say is, is that if I like something and want it, then that means that I also am dissatisfied with not having it. So not liking is exactly the same thing as liking. Depends upon which direction you're looking. But wanting something very badly means that you want to be free from the absence of it. And also when you have something that you're putting up with, you want it to go away. So those are actually just two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing. And that when we flip that coin, we almost always flip it ignorantly. We don't know what we're doing. And so the whole process of the practice is to figure out the causes of the suffering of causes of the dukkha and see that in this present moment so that we can be free from it in this next present moment. Right now, to be clear, I uh, uh, I want to make sure I'm understanding also within the context, 
I feel like this is second truth, right? The, the yeah. distraction. First one is Anicca, third is Anatta. No. 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 Let's not work with the Trilokana right now. Let's talk about the Four Noble Truths right now. And then we'll get into how Anicca causes Dukkha if we are wanting the change to not be the change. In other words, if we want things to not be Anicca when they are Anicca, now there's the source of the dukkha is because we don't like the change or we want something to change we plan for it to change we paid for it to change <laughs> and it doesn't change and now we're unsatisfied because it didn't change according to our schedule our plan okay so the change is built in there but the change is secondary because even if things don't change, there's still dukkha. And if there is change, there is dukkha, depending upon what we wanted. Mm. Dukkha is inherent. No, dukkha is not inherent. It's ignorant. Yeah, yes, yes. It is ignorant for us to cause ourselves dukkha. But we do it because we want things. And many times people will come to meditation wanting something from the meditation. Because they want something from the meditation, they don't get anything out of it. They want jhana, they want access concentration, they want sotapan, they want arahat, they want enlightenment, they want nibbana, they want, they want, they want, they want, they want. And guess what? They haven't really changed anything. They really haven't changed the mind. It becomes a matter of seeing dukkha so clearly that you're repulsed. Ah, well, let us say that you see it so clearly that you're no longer bothering to be repulsed in order to avoid yeah. it. Repulsion is a beginner's technique. I'm a beginner, <laughs> but yes, yes. Well, um, basically, you could say that you got into meditation because you were repulsed. Yes. Yeah. All right. So repulsion uh, has some value. In other words, if you picked up a very, very hot potato. And you found out that it was hot, you're going to drop it really quickly. <laughs> that that hot potato or that hot rock almost glowing hot and you pick it up. Or you you lean against the counter and the counter is not a counter at all. It's one of these new modern ranges it's the, and the burner is on and you put your elbow on it. And you're going to move that elbow pretty quick. You're probably <laughs> going to move the elbow faster than you even uh, recognize that this is actually a stove. All right, so. The whole idea then is, is let, let's wake up and see that that's a stove before we lean against it. So this is what we mean by observation. Let's go out looking for the danger so that when we see it, we can avoid it right now. And most Westerners have the idea that I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, and then I don't have to look for dukkha anymore because it won't be there. I have eliminated it completely. Right, I am enlightened. Big deal. Whoop to do. <laughs> the better technique is is to recognize that you're already enlightened. You've already got everything that you need, and you don't need anything. That's a better practice. Not practice to get enlightened, but the practice of already being enlightened right now. Otherwise, you're just practicing wanting something that you don't have. And we're already very good at practicing and doing, wanting things we don't have. So to be enlightened, we have to practice being enlightened. If we're going to practice, if we're going to uh, become satisfied, then we have to practice in this moment, satisfaction. 
how do you yeah. how would you recommend working on the third novel truth anatta then i would pr i would prefer that you understand that you need to stop working and enjoy so that you already have the third noble truth the third noble truth is in fact would we stop wanting things and become satisfied and then that satisfaction is in nepali language sukha and that's a skill to be developed sukha is a skill to be developed it's a skill of satisfaction because we've been practicing the skill of being dissatisfied to the point that most many people are just constantly dissatisfied doesn't matter what happened it's not good enough would you say it's I, I don't actually mean to say this. I was going to say, is it fake it till you make it? But really, the, I imagine the sukha needs to be developed uh, genuinely feeling it in your heart. Well, basically, we can do it this way. This is part of the practice of the Buddha. And that is, is that you have been spending your whole life into talking yourself into wanting things and feeling bad. Yeah. Now it's time for you to talk yourself into being okay and satisfied. <laughs> and, and if you talk yourself into being safe and satisfied, then you begin to feel safe and satisfied. But if you're talking yourself into being dissatisfied and you're in a state of danger, then you'll feel like you're in a state of danger. It's very counterintuitive. Uh, yes, it's not necessarily counterintuitive, but we can say that the word intuitive and intuition can be of one or two types. One type of intuition is merely following our gut reactions, following our instincts, following our lowest impulses. Uh, impulses, right. Uh, and then intuitive can mean another way in the sense that we've actually figured it out. We've looked at it, we've investigated it, and we know it for sure. And now we can intuit how it's going to behave. So there's two different kinds of intuition. One of them is almost always good enough. And the other one is always or almost always unsatisfying. And we do tend to follow our uh, instincts. Why do we follow the instincts? Because that's the easy way out. We don't have to think about it. We just do what we've always done. Yeah. And children get into use to when they're babies, they cry out in pain. The first thing that happens is the baby will cry out in pain. And we get used to it, we build up the habit. So anytime anything happens, we cry out in pain. And then when we don't cry out, we just cry out in pain on the inside without making any noise. And we react to much of the world in that instinctual first learned behavior to cry out in pain. When in fact, the best thing that the doctor really wants that baby to do, that brand newborn, is to breathe. Because if it doesn't breathe, it's not going to live. So that's why the baby is often whacked, is to get it breathing. <laughs> but if it's already breathing, there's no reason to whack it. I, I have difficulty with, with that. What, getting whacked or breathing? <laughs> uh, 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 developing sukha. The, the developing sukha in the face of adversity, in the face of uh, difficulty. All right. Well, let's do one thing at a time. Let's go from the first and the second and the third noble truth down to the fourth noble truth, which actually is not a, uh, a path. It's not an eightfold noble path. It's more like a method. And now it's also uh, incorrect to even think of it as a path. Because in Western mentality, when we hear the word path, we think of a footpath or a bicycle path or a path to nowhere 
or a path in the sense of going someplace. Yeah. But imagine that we're a carpenter and we're in the carpenter shop and that we've got all the carpenter tools hanging on the wall that we know how to use and all of this pile of wood right here. In order to make a chair, we don't have to have a path. What we have to have is the skills to use those tools on the wood that we find at hand. So the Eightfold Noble Path is much, much more like a method than it is a path. But most people think all oh, that carpenter shop that you're talking about is 30 miles or 100 miles from here. <laughs> and I got to go to the those carpenter shop. Okay, that's how we practice meditation as if that uh, the goal is very, very far away, where in fact, no, the method is to be applied right here, right now. Another way of looking at it is, is that uh, Sukha is like a door to open. And all you need to do is to remember to put in the key and turn the crank and turn the knob and push. And the door is open. But for most of us, the idea of that sukha is that it's 20 miles and 30 miles <laughs> or 100 miles from here, and we got to go for it someplace. Right? That's one of the problems of calling it an eightfold noble path. But we know why that it's called that is because the people who did the original translation did not have a clue about what they were doing. To That's the... why we call dukkha suffering, but yeah. it is suffering at all. It's just a little niggle. It's just dissatisfaction. That's why we call in, it the, the end, Go in ahead. The, in the eyes of the the dissatisfied uh, dukkha generator, not doing anything sounds so uh, absurd. It sounds so so insane that that's the uh, that's how little effort and and distance needs to be crossed to access this sukha from the, the ego's point of view, I guess. It sounds so wild. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because our society teaches us to struggle, to work. And basically, you can say that that part of the society that puts that in there is the one who is trying to take advantage of your labor. It's the difference between capitalism versus, let us say, unionized or a collective. You know what a collective is? Um, a co-op? Okay. The co-op is where everybody, all the farmers in that co-op makes all the money from their grain. But if they sell it to a big conglomerate, then they're going to get less money for it. Because a big conglomerate is not there to help the farmer. The big conglomerate is there to help itself. Okay. Your all your bosses are like that, that the only reason why anyone would give you a job and pay you a salary is because they can make money off of you being there. Which means that you're not making all the money that you're worth. That's what our society is built upon. Our society capitalism is just another word for exploitation. <laughs> And so we are we teach our children from their babyhood, from their childhood to be exploited. The Buddha has a word for this, and that is um, you've probably heard of the woeful states, including the animal state. This is the state of a dumb animal doing what we're told to do with either postponing or never getting the reward. And this is what our whole society is based upon. So when you're saying that you feel dukkha, you think that you've got to go do something to get rid of the dukkha. That's because that's the way that it would be in our society. Oh, you feel bad? Well, come and work for me. Oh, you feel bad? Come buy this house. Oh, you feel bad? Come marry this girl. Oh, you feel bad? Go to this doctor. Oh, you feel bad? Pay me some money and I'll give you something for you to feel better. It's always a business or a barter exchange system in capitalism rather than, oh, you feel bad? Take the day off. 
No, they don't say it like that. No, it's the other thing. Okay, if you feel bad, you've got to do something. This inaction, while also harnessing sukha, yeah, I, that's my. No, 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 no. Sukha is not to be harnessed. Sukha is what arises when there is no dukkha. There are opposites. There is nothing to be gained and everything to lose. And this is upside down because your whole society you're living in is telling you you've got to get something, you've got to gain it. In order for you to be not afraid, you've got to get a weapon or a tool to make you not afraid. The right way to do it is just recognize there's nothing to be afraid of here. And we can feel safe and secure, and therefore we don't need a weapon to make us feel safe and secure. Because even with the weapon, we still don't feel safe and secure. Once on the cushion, meditating, I experience dissatisfaction. I just look at it. No, that's the whole problem with that kind of meditation practice. That's the problem with the um, Goenka and the Mahasi and uh, is they go forward and look at it just like it is. But the Buddha talks about it to look like it, to see it as it is. And if it's unwholesome, then change it. That the basic mm -hmm. teaching of the Buddha is, is to make some changes. We've got to, and you already probably know that on the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Path, there is right effort. Yeah. What effort? The effort to change. The effort to go with the flow rather than being stuck. Yeah. And so okay. uh, a dissatisfaction like a pebble in the river going down the stream to change it would mean to to flip it, put it aside. Well, uh, if you're going if you're floating downstream and you are swimming, fighting to go upstream, the easier thing to do is to stop paddling and float. Because you can't you can't go back upstream. Streams too heavy for you. Okay. And so, um, un unless you understand, like an instant of uh, the very very earliest part of our civilization was able to use the Nile in two directions. Why? Because going downstream, they let the boat float, but the prevailing winds were from. Um, north to south, which meant that with the with uh, sails, they could go back and go upwind or uh, upstream. But if they had no sails, if they could not take advantage of the prevailing wind, then they have no choice. Doesn't matter how much they paddle, they're not going to go back uphill, okay, or up upstream. This is what we have is, is that we need to find a way of going with the flow so that it's not dangerous. I'm trying to understand how that translates on the cushion. When, well, once actually, I'm not really interested in it on the cushion so much. We'll talk about on the cushion later, but mm -hmm. we're actually talking about you're not going to be on the cushion all the time. Yeah. And that if you are doing things off the cushion all day long, then the likelihood is, is that when you get on the cushion, you're going to be doing that same stuff. That's the problem with meditation is they keep doing the same old stuff that they've done all day and they just sit on the floor and continue to do that stuff that they've done all day, expecting new results. Okay. And so let's look at the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Path as a whole or a unit for a little while, rather than trying to figure out how do I fit all of this stuff in. That one of the things that I've come to understand is, is that the students who come and ask questions so that uh, and so that I can give them something and they're trying to fill in the gaps. That's a long, slow process. A much better process is to take 
the new teaching and understand it well and understand it as a whole and then kind of use what our own knowledge was to fit that in so that things come together like this rather than this way. Okay. And so let's uh, not look at what to practice yet. Let's just keep going with this whole teaching of the Buddha, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, and look at how the, the Eightfold Noble Path fits into place because the Eightfold Noble Path is what he teaches and Anapanasati is the method of that practice in order to get the goal of the four foundations of mindfulness. I have a question about that. Well, let's, not. let's just hang in there and go with the four. Otherwise, we're going to go way off down into some tube. Let's stay with the, the Eightfold Noble Path or the Eightfold Noble Method for a moment. Okay. Now, it's divided into three parts. The three parts are normally referred to as Sila, Samati, Panya. Okay. That is the ordinary way of practice or ordinary way of beginners. And that the, uh, uh, the method that we're using here is to turn that upside down and go for the noble practice immediately. So everything that you already know, you know about an ordinary way of practice with ordinary people and ordinary teachers getting ordinary results. And let's do it another way. And that is, let's start with the noble method and stay with the super mundane and start practicing that. And every time that we're not practicing that, we're back into the ordinary. And we can actually then say that that's dukkha. So let's come out of the ordinary way with the ordinary mindsets in our ordinary culture and come into the noble method. Now, the noble method is actually panya samati sila that sila is actually the outcome of a mind that is uh fit for work Sila, in other words if you don't want anything right now then you're unlikely to kill someone you're unlikely to steal it you're unlikely to harm someone you're unlikely to tell a lie if you're completely satisfied right now but ordinary ways of doing it, oh, well, those little kids are not smart enough to figure out that they can get their mind collected together so that they don't want anything, and they're in a state of desire, and so we've got to curb that desire by giving them a bunch of rules. You can't go there. Yes, you want that toy out of that child's hand, but you can't take it away from him, and so we live us in according to a set of rules rather than looking at the underlying causes. The underlying causes is what needs to be looked at, and that's a noble view, rather than setting up a set of standards or a set of rules, which is an ordinary way of doing it. In this regard, then, the Buddha actually says in a particular sutta that he's going to teach right, noble organization of mind with its supports and features. Now, this is an important quality. So he's taking the state of sama area samati. And by the way, the word samati has been wrongly translated by the ordinary people into the word concentration. The word samati nobly, and the way that the Buddha uses the word samati, is to gather the factors together so that they support one another. So concentration means to get less debt, get down to just the essence and to throw out all of the unimportant stuff. And the Buddha says, no, we've got to get everything together. And so in a way, samadhi is exactly opposite of the word concentration. So let's not use the word concentration, but we can use things like focus or paying attention to. Because this is what we're really talking about. But we're not talking about concentrating the mind or going deep or any of that kind of stuff. This is one of the big confusions is this word concentration. In fact, this is one of the first words you used in our talk was concentration. All right? And we're not looking for concentration. We're looking for organization instead. We're looking for utilities. So if we concentrate, um, let us say it like this, if you, we have a, an alarm clock, or let us say a grandfather clock, the kind of tick-tock, 
tick tock and it ticks every second and talks every second and the second hand moves okay so if that clock is well organized if it is clean well oiled and timed then it will collect the right time this is what we would call samadhi because it's in correct organization if the gears are not missing some of them in the drawer and some of them in the toilet and some of them in the field you know no all of the gears are right there but if we say i'm going to concentrate that grandfather clock and take a sledgehammer to it you might be able to get it into a one foot box but it's not going to function if it's concentrated so too the mind if the mind is concentrated it's not fit for work so a samati mind is well organized well completed and has all the functioning components to it working together then that mind is in samadhi. This is why we're uh, practicing now is to get the mind in a state that's fit for work. Would you say that um, back to the guacamole example you had earlier, it's the acceptance of the noise and transforming it into one single source? Another way of thinking it is, is that we're not paying attention to all the noise of all of the other guacamoles. We're learning to get one of them. Okay, we're learning just to look at one thing. So this is how we begin to do that. The supports uh, are, uh, are the features, are the sila. Once the mind is completely organized, then our behavior is going to be good enough. But the other four are the way that we start. The first one is right viewing. And if we understand that correctly, then we can make some progress because most people, uh, the way that we're right view, we talk about it, a worldview or a viewpoint or uh, a way to view things. This is how we begin to think of it. And in fact, wrong view and ordinary right view are just that. You could think, you could say that wrong view is the, uh, the view that I can get away with it. I can go around and I can hurt people and I can get what I want and I can get away with it. And there's a certain amount of that. And then ordinary right view is the right view of no, you can't get away with it. We're going to punish you if you do it. So you have basically progressives and conservatives. The progressives are we can go get this, that, and the other thing done and it won't cost anything. And the conservatives is, no, that'll be way too expensive. We can't do it like that. You got to stop. Okay. So those are the two primary viewpoints that are, are in the world. And that we each person moves back and forth between being progressive and being conservative in our own minds. And that the, the conservative or the ordinary right view says you can't get away with it and we're going to make sure you can't get away with it because we're going to make some rules. We're going to hire police. We're going to get an army and we're going to make sure that you're not going to get away with it. And then just in case, we're going to hire a priest. So <laughs> even after you're dead, you're not going to get away with it. <laughs> yes. Okay, so this is the whole quality and the, the ordinary right view is where we normally practice meditation and we need to come into a different way of looking at it. And this is what we call the noble right way of looking at things. So it's now noble right view is not a noun like a worldview is a noun. Now it becomes a verb. Yeah. Looking, noticing, oh, yeah, investigating. Okay, so we need to change it from a noun into a verb and looking to see what's really there. In now, some way, it's owning our responsibility. It through through that changing changing from a noun to a verb, it's you you have a you're recognizing your responsibility and. Uh, well, let us say that as you begin to change the noun to a verb, you begin to see your response ability, the ability to respond 
as opposed to the ability <laughs> to react, which is what we've been doing. Okay, that we do by seeing it correctly have an ability to respond nobly. Appropriately. But normally, in ordinary right view, we will react the same way that we have been acting. That's why we call it a reaction. It's called we do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a new result. Yeah. I never saw it that way because uh, I. Yeah, yeah. Reaction for me was always a re related to um, as in response, but it's it's funny to think of it as a repetition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That normally we do not respond. We just react. It's just an old thing that we do. But if we're looking at things in a brand new way, then we can. The first thing that we actually have to do is to remember to look in a new way, to remember that we're not going to see things the way that we've been seeing as up and down and right and wrong and progressive and conservative and all of that kind of stuff, but we're going to begin to see things in a new way. Under the four normal truths. And right, and so that new way, we have to remember to look at the new way and the new way is going to be looking at it. The skill that we're going to develop is, is this worth doing right now or should I stop? What am I doing right now? Is it worth doing or do I have a choice to stop? So this is where the third noble truth comes into play and that is one's right noble effort. Now right noble effort means the least amount of effort needed to actually get it done. You can think of that the right noble effort is brakes. We have <laughs> to apply the brakes in order to stop doing what we would normally do as a reaction. So these three things run and circle around one another, so the Buddha says. Right view, right effort, and right sati to remember to look and to change. Remember to look and to change. Remember to look and to change. This is the three first parts of the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, this is how we then take these three things and start applying that to Anapanasati. If we can take these three items and apply that to Anapanasati and see that this is the real thing that needs to be practiced is to look to see and to change by stopping what we were doing before. Okay, so we have to remember that. This is the primary school. An example of that or the way of thinking about it is it doesn't matter what school you have. We were talking about the, the carpenter. It does not matter what carpentry skills that carpenter has if he doesn't remember to go to the carpenter shop. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, I I blocked an hour to talk to you, so I have to go now. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, um, we just gotten started. <laughs> yes. That we haven't even gotten to the practice, but rather just given that. So can you take another five minutes? Yes. All right. So let's see if we can sum up in five minutes. So right effort is key. Right view right looking, right noticing. And the question of noticing, is this thought a wholesome thought or is it not? If it is a not a wholesome thought, then we have to make the change to it is a wholesome thought. And the Anapanasati Sutta, this is also referred to as gladdening the mind or brightening the mind, which is what I was talking about before, is you have to talk yourself into it. That's the change. You have to say that all things are okay right now. There's no place to go. There's nothing to do. It's okay. Just stop. Okay. Basically to stop and to take a deep breath and just enjoy the moment. This is what the word anapana means is uh, mindfully breathing in and breathing out. And in many of the meditation systems think that means just to note the breath. But here, 
Anapanasati, the one's right effort is we've got to seize the breath. We've got to control the breath. It does say long, deep in-breath. So we have to make sure that this is a long, deep in-breath because the normal way of breathing is shallow. It's easy. And so we have to take the effort to change the way that we're breathing uh -oh. Uh -oh. as well as to change the uh, way that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. That's one's right effort. Now we keep changing this over and over again, which means we keep breathing and we keep noticing that this is not worth having, throw it out and come back and say, wow, I'm really glad I don't have to think about Aunt Susie. Oh, I'm so glad I don't have to think about the boss right now. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad I do not have to repair that computer right now. Oh, I'm so glad I do not have to go to the refrigerator right now. Yeah. And we could just sit here and be happy that we don't have to do anything. That's where the sukha begins to come in, is when we begin to feel satisfied because there really is no place to go or nothing to do right now. <laughs> so it's a whole new change in attitude from I'm trying to get something into I'm trying to figure out that I already have everything that I need and I should enjoy it like that. And this is where the sukha will come from, is with the realization that it really is okay to be happy. You don't have any reason to be unhappy because you don't want anything. If you want something like enlightenment, then of course you're going to be dissatisfied. But if you're okay without it, then you're okay. And that's real enlightenment, is to be <laughs> un unheavy when you're carrying enlightenment around it becomes very burdensome <laughs> yeah and so you can just set it down and so this is a way of practicing so uh because you've got to go and we haven't quite finished what we were talking i would uh recommend that you call me in the next day or two you can begin to practice this a little bit just make this this main change is to recognize that whatever thoughts that you're having probably are not worth having. Let's drop them and have a better thought. Like, wow, right now, this is a better thought. Right now, no snakes, no alligators, everything <laughs> is safe. Yes. And so we can take a deep breath and relax. That's what step four about Apanasati is. That's what Kawanka was eventually trying to teach. She was teaching too much scanning and not enough relaxation. Thank you so much. All right, so let's finish now, and uh, Thomas, we'll see you soon. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Have All right. Day. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay,